Hello and welcome to the Perfect Gentleman podcast. Uh, this is episode 12. I am Zach Falconer Barfield, the founder of The Perfect Gentleman. And alongside me is my erstwhile colleague, James Marwood. Indeed. Hello, guys. Good to see you. And we are immensely honoured for this special podcast today to be joined by three other people. I shall let them introduce themselves. Let's ladies first. Uh, Leah, please introduce yourself and tell us a little Thank bit about you. you. Sure. Uh, I'm Leah Morrigan. I'm actually the perfect lady at The Perfect Gentleman. I have my column there. Uh, I am a men's image consultant in Canada. I live in Toronto. I'm a men's writer, and I have been taking men from good to great since 2004. Wow, fantastic. Thank you. Grant Harris, please introduce yourself to the world. Pleasure to be here. My name is Grant Harris, coming to you from Washington, D.C., I am a menswear consultant and writer uh, extraordinaire, so to speak. I'm still on my journey to try to get extraordinary. Uh, I am the uh, man in columnist. I unfortunately had my first piece published uh, last month and looking forward to continuing with the group. Wonderful. And Brian Sheridan, please. Well, I'm Brian Sheridan. I'm a university professor at Mercyhurst University in Erie, Pennsylvania. My interest is media as well as the 1930s, so I, I take a lot of my style advice and style uh, interest from that period of time and the greats like Fred Astaire and Cary Grant, and uh, I hope to be able to offer some perspectives and others uh, from the historical angle. I'm the uh, dapper academic at, uh, on Facebook. Well, thank you very much, and it's a pleasure to welcome you all to the podcast. So, James, we're honoured to have all these guests. We are. This is this a real treat. It's just been you and I talking at people up until now, so I'm very excited. Yeah, I'm excited too. So this special podcast, really what we're going to do, we've, we've got a couple of topics of conversation that we're going to launch into. I will try and be ringmaster for the conversation and just our sort of thoughts and ideas and feelings and what we want to talk about about these topics. I think it's going to be fun. So I think without further ado, we should crack on. Our, our first topic... We might only do one. You never know how much we talk. <laughs> yes. It's probably a very relevant one. And one of the reasons we, we are all here as well is um, the decline in general manners globally and why. So who wants to crack off with this topic? Grant's going to start. There we go. I've had the fortune of doing business uh, and experiencing pleasure in several countries around the world. And, and obviously, as we all know, different customs, uh, there are different mannerisms uh, around the globe. And depending on your level of business uh, and uh, your level of interaction with the human race as a whole uh, will, will determine your, your level of manners. Uh, speaking from the D.C. area, speaking from an American standpoint, uh, and, and looking on that angle, uh, we have, in my estimation, taken several steps back from what manners uh, should be or what they used to be, and especially what uh, gentlemanliness uh, used to be, or at least the perception of what it used to be. Uh, obviously, I have not uh, lived throughout the decades past and past, I know what the older generation has shared with me personally. I know what I've read. I know what I've seen uh, and these types of things. And that's where I take uh, my information to, to amalgamate my perceptions. 
uh, unfortunately, we find ourselves in a world where we are so interconnected that we become disconnected. Uh, we're so uh, uh, next to each other in terms of you can speak to anyone uh, across the globe at any point in time that you like, but that convenience has in and of itself uh, torn us apart in terms of how we communicate because we can send, I can send a text message to Leah right now and everyone on the call, but that text is not the same as a handwritten letter. Uh, Leah's not gonna get the same feel from the text and even in that text, it may not be a full sentence that she would get if I took the right time to, to, to send a handwritten letter or a handwritten thank you note. So the fact that we are so interconnected, I believe has led to uh, the epidemic of further disconnection um, because of convenience, uh, because of inconvenience leads to laziness and laziness leads to sloppiness. And again, it's taken us a step further from back where we need to be. So in days past, when it took longer to communicate, uh, it took more effort to communicate, uh, it took more time uh, in terms of not only uh, uh, writing that letter, but the thought process. In those ways, men and women took the time and put in the effort to say, okay, well, if I'm going to do all of this, I want to do it right, and I want to do it right the first time. Now, where you can delete an email from Google before it ever hits anyone's inbox, uh, now where you can kind of erase uh, uh, mistakes, people take it for granted that they should do it properly the first time. So all of that combined, uh, I, I think, and I don't want to sound like that I'm uh, disapproving of technology. Technology is great, but in certain situations, when it comes to manners, when it comes to gentlemanliness, I think the fact that we've gotten closer has actually drawn us apart, if that makes sense. It does. Um, but I mean, interestingly enough, you, you mentioned technology there, which is a big thing. It, it's, but it, do you, does anyone think that technology is just partly to blame? Is there anything else that, uh, you know, thinks in the global manners? Sorry. Go on. I, I teach I teach in, with technology and how to interact with technology. And it does. It, there is a certain interpersonalness uh, with that where it it's we're removed from face-to-face -face communication and it's easier not to to actually engage with somebody on a back and forth you can send a text you can send an email and you can't read uh, tone uh, into any of those things and so uh, oftentimes we have to be very simplistic and uh, we lose the visual response of seeing somebody's face seeing somebody's eyes and and as cliche as it might sound the windows are the eyes to the soul it's actually true and and we we are geared to pick up visual cues our brain is is wired that way and we take that away it becomes easy to insult somebody it, is, it becomes easier to be a troll on the internet when you don't see the pain the hurt the anger that you're causing uh, i also think that there's a certain amount of a, a big streak of anti-intellectualism that has occurred. We have dumbed things down, and you know, and you could point to a lot of politicians and businesses where that that's a good thing because they, you know, if you're engaged and in and up to date and intelligent, you're seen as a threat. You're not seen as somebody who should participate in these things. So I think we, especially in men. We have, we have seen this, and, I, and I'm not saying that this is bashing women, that women are doing this by any means. I, I believe that we have seen 
the, the Madison Avenue, the advertisers, sitcoms demonstrate men who are gentlemanly, who do have taste and good manners as, as being portrayed as buffoons or uh, inc- incapable of doing things. Uh, I, I would say that probably the most sophisticated person on American television is a, uh, is a cartoon figure named Squidward. Uh, on the SpongeBob SquarePants TV show, I know Squidward well. Yeah, <laughs> yes, he's a butt of jokes, and I think this is even the word elite. The elite, if you want, if you need surgery, right? You want an elite surgeon. LeBron James is an elite basketball player. Sorry to Toronto for that one, but uh, he's an elite basketball player. But yet, the word elite is is taboo it's like you're an elitist and which is something completely different but uh all of this is is bound up in this idea that we uh we we shouldn't be pursuing higher callings we shouldn't be studying we shouldn't be thinking we shouldn't be engaging each other because that causes waves and we don't want that so i think that uh, technology is partly to blame for that because we have lost that interpersonal touch but it's it's not the only thing. In fact, it has allowed I I believe people from different countries and uh, to to really find people like all of us who are interested in this kind of thing. That uh, we it would have this would have been impossible without the advance of technology. I agree, Leah. What are, what are your thoughts on this this topic? Uh, I have lots of thoughts. I was writing notes down, scribbling them down when I was listening to Grant and Brian. Uh, both of them definitely touched on some very important issues. Te- technology has, well, it has a chokehold on us, doesn't it now? And uh, it's easy to hide behind a screen and be rude to who, I mean, I've had my share of hate mail, uh, which is never nice. And there's so much miscommunication. People will make assumptions that, oh, I got this text from somebody and I don't know how to interpret it. So I'm just going to make the assumption that they're being rude and I'm going to <laughs> respond, you know, accordingly. That can happen. So there's a lot of miscommunication. And so that can kind of be the downfall of manners. But I think also life is too fast for people to be pleasant and polite. Okay. Uh, people, you know what I mean? Schedules are so fast and we've not got a lot of time for each other to sit down and look at each other in the eye and have a conversation. I mean, that's almost a lost art now. So I think that uh, a jam-packed schedule um, will keep us from being polite, will keep us from from being mannerly because, sorry, I got to go. I got to go to my next thing, right? We don't have the time. So I think a lack of time is certainly something that uh, is adding to this decline of manners. Um, But also, we're all sitting, Brian, you can also speak to this. I think that the media has a big, plays a big role here. People have, uh, people tend to take cues from television and take cues from the internet and, and all, all different other sorts of media. And when they see rudeness being portrayed and, and indeed being uplifted or upheld yep. by the people that whoever runs the, you know, the, the networks, you know, especially young, um, young and impressionable people will pick that up. Oh, that's how I'm supposed to be. Oh, that's how I'm going to get respect. Mm-hmm. So I think that there's a whole lot of things going on. Also, uh, because of the way our economy works now, both parents work, so the kids don't have a lot of, um, they don't have a lot of guidance, right? Like, I mean, when we were young, 
your grandmother made good and damn sure that you that you were acting properly and if you weren't you were in trouble but we don't have that kind of we don't have that guidance anymore so i think that's another piece of this puzzle if you want to take movies for instance the the big players in films today don't wear suits they wear super suits right they uh we don't have a, a William Powell or uh, a uh, Terry Grant to demonstrate right. this is this is a way to behave. You know, this is this is a very beneficial way to behave if you want to be successful and, and interact mm-hmm. with others. We see people if uh, just do it by by uh, being being smart Alex and being disrespectful. And those are held up as as almost role models that that those are the people that are mm-hmm. successful the rude, the arrogant, and uh, not realizing that that's really uh, not a long-term strategy for success. I don't 100% agree with with everything. I want to play a little bit devil's advocate. Um, There's a quotation some of you might have heard, which is, um, the children now love luxury. They have bad manners and contempt for authority. They show disrespect for elders and love chatter in place of exercise. Children now are tyrants, not the servants of their households. They no longer rise when elders enter the room. They contradict their parents, chatter before company, gobble up dainties at the table, cross their legs and tyrannize their teachers. <laughs> As a teacher, I'd say yes. You're probably yes. right. I was attributed to Socrates by Plato. Wow. <laughs> um, in sort of 400-ish BC. Which so, social media platform did, did Socrates use? I'm, sure. I'm not aware of that. The idea, I think, that, that young people and that society is less well-mannered and coarser than it was before is an old one. And I think if you read any historical literature around this, you'll, you'll see similar ideas coming forwards. Now, that's not to say that it isn't the case. I think definitely you know, social media, changing social conventions, things like that have led to changes in, in how we act. And there certainly are things like trolling online or antisocial behaviour, things like that, that are issues that are relatively new for us, or at least coming forward in new ways. But I don't think we necessarily always give credit to the evolving nature of social discourse and of manners. And if you spend time in, in some of the more nuanced or more thoughtful online communities, for example, you'll see quite a lot of similar sorts of concerns about making the people you're with feel at ease, spent making other people feel comfortable, engaging meaningfully. Not everywhere, not by a long shot. Anyone who spends time online knows that. We do see some of those old ideas about what manners mean manifesting in new ways. I wonder if that's something you guys have seen. It's interesting you you take up that topic. There's two points I sort of want to follow up on. One is that sort of thing is, by being very well-mannered, you don't sort of stand up for being well-mannered. Of course. Because you're well-mannered as a person, because we're all very well-mannered people, you know, you are there to make other people feel at ease, and therefore that's the default setting, therefore you're not sort of standing up and waving the flag and whacking people over the head with it to tell them that they're poorly mannered. Uh, You know, it's the great thing in Britain, we just tut very loudly at you yes oh i will quietly see then you'll never know <laughs> exactly and then if we're very very upset we might write a letter <laughs> to the council well, that's, an, that's an interesting point that you bring up zach and not to interrupt no, no that's the whole point of this playing off of that because 
I am a mild mannered person, meaning we, we use the word manner and we manners and manner manners, all those things, please. And thank you. And making other feel others feel comfortable and your mannerism is who you are, your personality. So for me personally, I would take the route of, of maybe my, uh, my British, uh, brothers to say, okay, if I'm upset, I'm not necessarily going to lash out at the other person. Now, is that a rhetorical question? Is, is that manners or is that mannerism? Is that me personally as a person that I'm not going to, even if I'm upset, like you said, you'll write the letter, but you won't take that face to face. Well, that other person has displayed both manners and a mannerism that I either disagree with or I'm uncomfortable with. But my manners or my mannerisms will not allow me to stand up for myself, like you were saying earlier about, about standing up. The fact that you have manners inherently means that you're not standing up for the ones that don't just because you're showing that behavior. So sure. where do people fall in? And this is maybe going down a rabbit hole. But if someone offends you because they're not using their manners and it may be in their mannerism to be rude, is it rude for me or for us or for a person to go outside of their personality and their mannerisms and then treat that person in kind with that with with manners and i've gone around many times with mannerisms yeah. and manners but where do we draw the line between who we are and our mannerisms and where mm -hmm. we can take our external our internal mannerisms and where can we take our external manners does that make sense it does yes i'm reminded of one of the the early podcasts that the perfect gentleman did back in the previous incarnation where they talked about you may be able to help you rem remind me who this was zach but there was it was a british comedian it was on an american talk show it was russell brand that's the one yes and it was an interesting thing to watch because you you hit upon a cultural difference between two groups in this case a british to american difference where the three hosts of this or four hosts of this breakfast talk show were talking about Russell Brand and being very complimentary about him, but were talking about him as if he wasn't there. So they were saying, isn't he this and isn't he that? And he took offence to it, because in the UK that would be quite rude. You would say, aren't you? Or you would involve the person in that rather than talk about them as if, as if they weren't there. And he, he challenged them on that initially quite politely, and then, as they didn't get the point, more stridently. But he did that in a way that was humorous and fun without causing a, causing a scene. This I think podcast that's quite is brought to you by the Perfect Gentleman Group Limited to, to and was edited by for, Andy Nichol at the Pistachio Palace. Or to point out something which is, which is rude or inappropriate or unfair and do that in a way that doesn't cause unnecessary upset but shows that you're, that you're not happy. Oh, it certainly is a skill. Yeah, it certainly mm. is a skill. On a similar point, I was reminded of a, a story a, a friend of mine told me recently where he was talking about his daughter, I think actually in Canada. She was friends with this one particular girl who nobody else was friends with because this girl was mean all the time and nasty and unpleasant. And he asked his daughter, why, why are you friends with her when she's mean and nasty? And he said, well, because maybe nobody's ever taught her how to be nice. Mm. So if I'm nice to her, then maybe she'll learn. Mm -hmm. Out of the mouths of babes, you get this wisdom. But I think there is something in this idea of, of needing to, to hold people to, and expect a, a higher standard, but do that in a way without, without dropping to their level. Yeah, I think that's the important thing. I mm. think you've nailed that, that it is. I'm going to bring this around to my point of view because mm -hmm. of, for I'm vegan. Mm -hmm. Vegans are the worst for making other people feel bad about their choices. 
And there's a movement among many of us online where that's not how we approach it because we are going to repel people more than attract people. And we feel that it's more of if we have this lighthouse kind of mentality Mm -hmm. where we'll stand there and we will we will do our thing and we will demonstrate that we are happy, we are healthy, we are all of these things without having to put you down in that you'll come around to our way of thinking and, and not to not to push this idea on anyone, but obviously be there if you want to ask a question. I can explain how what do I eat and how do I feel and why I'm doing this. I, and I think we see that could be the best way of, of approaching people who are rude in that kind of not obviously not getting down to their level, mm. but continuing our demeanor of being mannered and proper and mm-hmm. demonstrating that that this is a better way of going about things. And it, it's if the moment you try to hit back, uh, you know, and, and again, as a martial artist, and I know, you know, you're a martial artist as well, mm-hmm. that force meeting force rarely works out so well. Yeah. The stronger yeah. force will win. It's blending with the force and showing a better way is often how you can change people's opinions versus just trying to beat them over the head because they will become entrenched in their own ideas and their beliefs and you won't win. It's going to be you banging your head up against the wall, which is not gentlemanly at all either. <laughs> it's, it's not comfortable either. No. <laughs> and that's, that's, a, that's a great point, Brian, that you bring up. And I believe that it extends to a certain level of if you're going to show manners, if you're going to show restraint, that it's a certain level of humility. Um, because you have to have a certain level of humility to not retaliate or not push your agenda or not be like the other person is being towards you. Uh, it takes humility, it takes patience, it takes perseverance. And I believe manners encompass all of those things, which is why uh, I believe manners in and of themselves, most people look at them, oh, you didn't say please, oh, you didn't say thank you, especially the younger generation. They just think that parents are picking on them. Uh, you sure. didn't say yes or no, no, sir. And we all look at it from a standpoint of respect. Oh, you're disrespectful. You're not respecting. The younger generation doesn't respect. But for a a growing generation and a growing man, uh, I believe that on a regular basis that the mannerisms and making other people feel comfortable a lot of times means that I have to feel uncomfortable or or uh, endure that from a humility standpoint, humbling myself that my thoughts are not the, the, the best thoughts all the time. I'm not 100 percent right. Uh, the way that I've gone about things in life. Other people have had different experiences and I can't say, well, I'm used to saying yes, sir, no, sir. So you should too, just because mm-hmm. it's it's a level of humility and then being able to, if I'm instilling that in someone or if I'm going to t- make the choice to lead by example, being patient enough to see that that person or that, that group of people may stumble, they may go left, they go, may go right, but it, at the end of the day, hopefully that they follow on the right path. So it's a combination of of endurance and patience and humility, I believe that ultimately utilizing your manners on a regular basis teaches a a man and, and a person, because if you don't have those things or if you don't utilize those things, the please and the thank you are just, are, they're just empty. You're only doing it because it's a rote uh, uh, a prescription that someone gave you that, like Leah said, a grandmother said, you do it, then I do it just because my grandmother said, do it. Sure. Not because of 
uh, I'm humbling myself to authority, not because I'm uh, using patience in, in the way that I speak to another person. That's how I really see uh, manners from a 360 degree uh, level, utilizing those things on a regular basis. That's, that's what it is for me. I don't know how you guys feel about it. Uh, Brian and Grant sort of touched on this already, but I wanted to sort of move forward with it. Uh, the, the concept of respect. I think is very prominent in this discussion because, I mean, there are a lot of rude people in the world, let's be honest. We don't know why they're rude, but I think that a lot of, the, a lot of reason uh, behind their rudeness is because they are disrespected in life. Grant, you said this sort of retaliate with their rudeness back and then there's sort of this rudeness war. Well, that doesn't have to be. I find that when I encounter a rude person that I have to interact with, I decide, okay, well, I can either be rude back to this person and then just create more problems, or I can step back, look at the person in the eye and communicate with them and speak to them on a respectful level and listen to what they have to say. When we treat other people with respect, they treat us with respect and then they feel better about themselves and they feel better about the fact that they can have a conversation with another person and, and it can be a civil communication and they can express their ideas across to each other. And I think that maybe this is what our, uh, the downfall of manners is about. Is it seems like we're in, a, in kind of a disrespectful point in, in society right now, but it's very easily remedied. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I think that's, that's it. And I think in America, what we're seeing, because you know we have a presidential candidate who, who seems to traffic in rudeness mm -hmm. and disrespect, and, you know, and if you look at the demographics, you know, I'm not so sure that it is not about, at least in America here, the last gasp of the the white male being in charge. I mean, if you deal with young people like I do, they don't hold the same things as important. You know, we're seeing all this transgender bathroom stuff over here. And mm -hmm. I'm sure in Europe, it's like, are you kidding me? Who cares where people you have to go? You have to Same go with Canada. <laughs> <laughs> Same with Canada, yes. Yeah. Justin Theroux is amazing, and and all of this, and and I see it as that there's a great feeling of our way of life. This white person, uh, Christian dominated, you know, we won World War II. I think the feeling is is that they're being disrespected, and they see that how things are changing so quickly. So instead of having the patience, which you guys talked about, which is perfect, it's about. I want to be rude because I don't have time to be nice. I've got to get this done now because mm. it's going to mean the end of civilization if we let people pee wherever they want. And that I think <laughs> is, that's you know, and that's what the appeal is. I think of of Trump and this idea that they they're trying to hold on so desperately to what they see as their way of life. And the, back to the feeling of that I'm being disrespected. And I was going to bring this topic up at the end, but I'm going to bring it up now because it's kind of relevant and we've, we've mentioned it in passing and directly in a couple of times. It's about role models. Uh, and we've mentioned one being the political ones <laughs> of, of both sides of the spectrum. I mean, certainly from the UK, we kind of look at it and go, there isn't the, the media tends to, you know, not show as many good role models, male or female, um, as much as they used to. You know, it's all about someone who gets their kit off or does something disrespectful. Or th they don't seem to bastion the people that uh, 
show respect? What, what are your thoughts about role models and who are the ones that you respect? Those kind of thoughts. Ro- role models, uh, I believe there are no good and bad. And I know that's difficult a difficult concept to, uh, or difficult, difficult angle to approach that concept from because most people put role models in the category or oh, you're a good role model or you're a bad role model. Well, that depends on who's looking at the role model. Uh, famously, Charles Barkley, the, the NBA basketball player uh, here in America, I think he's very funny, he's a commentator. Uh, he, he routinely says that he's not a role model. Well, in American society, we have this concept of the role model as if you do good, if, uh, if you're a nice person, if you use manners, uh, if you save the world a la Superman, then you are a good role model. And if you do the antithesis of that, if you do the exact opposite, then therefore you are a bad role model. Well, maybe I can say this as, a, as an adult and it's more difficult for, for you and what they see, but you can look at a person and choose and say, okay, well, this person is doing this. I don't like that. Then I can go a different route. Or this person is doing this. I do like that and I can follow that. If the person is doing something quote unquote bad, well, we have to understand, well, what what does society say is, is bad? Back to the bathroom discussion that just came up. Or if something is done well or good, what is deeming that as well or, or, or good? So you can look at a person that is being rude and say, ah, that person is a role model. Mm-hmm. But maybe that's not the role that I want to follow. Or maybe sure. it is the role that I want to follow, but in a different way. I just want to do it a little bit differently. So, again, it's a very difficult concept for us as Americans to have a conversation about, quote unquote, role models without putting them in. Oh, you're Superman and here's uh, Lex Luthor. He's the bad guy. So he's the bad role model. Don't do what he does. It's very difficult to look at that. But you can look at two people and without it being blatantly obvious that one is 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 in the light and very good and the other is in the dark and very good what about that gray area where does it come where they're very similar and there's not much difference between the two well which one are you going to say is a role model you look at both and you take them as they are and you can make your own decision which way you want to go if if i recall the the charles barkley controversy a bit. It, it was it was a commercial he did for for Nike where he, he he had this speech about I'm not a role model and the the bit behind that was him talking about kind of don't rely on me to to role model your children or to tell, teach your children how to act that should be you doing that you as parents or as communities or or, or teachers yeah and you take that down to the teaching level and mm-hmm. I've I've gotten into teaching myself in different roles sure. and I'm probably not as experienced as uh, as Brian is but. In the educational system, a lot of it is left up to the teacher, but then the teacher is handcuffed because if you do too much of the parenting role, then the parents that aren't there, going back to Leah's uh, discussion about having busy schedules, then they feel like that they are being disrespected, like we've been talking about, and they feel like that the power is being taken from them. And why should anyone else be a role model for my child? But they are blind to the fact that they are not being a role model for their own. So, yes, Mm -hmm. all of several categories or several factors that we've discussed going to that Charles Barkley era when he was saying, yeah, I'm not a role model. The parents need to be mm-hmm. and in different generations. The teachers could be more than what they are now. Even in my uh, my youth coming up, sure. teachers are more involved than they are now. And again, that's a different conversation. And, and I'm mm. sure Brian can touch on that more. But it's an interesting concept. Well, what I think is interesting is that there's a there's an inherent problem with role models being humans. 
Hmm. You know, Lance Armstrong, huge role model. Well, until we found out who he really was. It's almost easier to have fictional role models like a Bertie Wooster because they they are going to disappoint you uh, in any way. Or people who have passed on because you can see the rise and the fall of their life. It's tough to have role models that are human breathing, living people, because sometimes they they don't live up to expectations, mm-hmm. and their expectations that people, uh, you know, they don't even realize people have of them. So I think that's that's a, an inherent like problem. The the role model should be parents or, or people who put in the day's work, work and and put food on the table and. But those, but we also have to realize that they're humans, and mistakes are made, and it's how you make your mistakes and how you recover from setbacks. Thing, and I know when I teach, one of the first things I tell my students is that I don't know all the answers. I try to right off the bat let them know that that I'm here to help you find the answers. I don't know the answers sometimes, and if I don't, I will be honest with you. But that tries to make them accountable for their own actions. So it's not just feed me feed me your knowledge just i'm going to sit here and like a sponge because you have to be active involved in in your own education and your own life you can't just be a bystander leah what are your thoughts oh boy this is a hard question for me because i don't know if i believe in role models okay no no that's good that's fine no (laughs) no no, but that's the whole part of the conversation go go right ahead yeah i suppose it is i mean when i think of i don't know i mean I'm i'm a woman as well so i'm going to have a different perspective on the role model idea than the gents will. I don't know if I ever had a role model when I grew up, to be honest. I feel as though I brought myself up. You know, there were things that I took interest in and things like that, but I don't think I had a role model. I mean, when when I think of role model, I guess I kind of think of the the media culture, like showing us like a superhero or something like that, but I don't think that's a role model. Don't, I don't know if I believe in it. I mean, this is extremely subjective as well. Mm. I can't say that, you know, this figure is should mm. be a role model to this group of people because I don't know either party. You, you said you brought yourself up and you presumably then, you, you would say that you, you, know, you made a, a conscious decision or a series of conscious decisions that I'm going to act this way and not that way. Let's see, how do I explain this? Um, I think I got to know myself very well. Okay, I, I think I'm similar to Zach in the sense that I spent a lot of time on my own as a kid. Sure. Zach spent his time reading. I spent my time reading and making things and being creative and stuff like that. I think I was only listening to my inner voice and I was being drawn to things that I was naturally drawn to without, you know, sort of any outside influence. I was just being very natural about it. You know, I mean, I would ask people for advice, of course, but and there, I don't think I really ever had a role model. I mean, I agree with Leah. I can't point to one person in my life and say, ah, that's the person that I want to be. I didn't grow up uh, with Michael Jordan stuck on my, I had a Michael Jordan poster, but I didn't want to be him because of the Michael Jordan persona. Even today, I don't look at actors and actresses. I'm not, I'm not a big fan of any one particular actor or actress and follow them and say, oh, I want to dress like him. I want to be like him. Uh, Obviously, I've had people in my life that have had an impact on me, my father, good and bad, the good things that he did for me, the bad things or the where he lacked. And I look at it as an adult and say, oh, well, yeah, he was a role model unconsciously to me. But I very much feel the same as as Leah. Not that I don't believe in them, but I didn't have a specific one that I could point to and say this person 
I wanted to be like growing up or this person impacted me so much that uh, I, I shaped a part of my life after them. Teachers do that. I still visit some of my uh, some of my uh, youth teachers because they had an impact on me, but I didn't want to be them. And I think inherently, and again, from the American standpoint, the idea of their role model is that you aspire to be like that person and you aspire to do the things that they do. Uh, and that's very different than people having an impact on you. And again, I think that's very difficult for Americans to understand or accept because we're used to, like Leah said, the super, the Superman, uh, the superhero role model, and then the exact antithesis of that being that bad person. That's quite interesting because there's a there's a theory in behavioral science that, that's come over into sort of political and behavioral economics that's called uh, nudge theory, and the idea is at its core that your your behavior and your your values are altered in in small but significant ways by the people you spend time with and the sort of one of the the simplistic arguments is that is that your weight and your health will be an average of the five people you spend most time with and i've heard that yeah i know the um the royal society for arts in in london did quite a lot of research in this and its use in public policy and i think it's it's quite interesting when you look at rather than a big role model like a a superman or or a michael jordan who you you idolize that Perhaps more of it, more than we realise, are the the small interactions that we have with people on a on a regular basis. So the the teacher you have for, for nine months of the year at school, your neighbour who you see from time to time, or the chap who works in the in the corner shop and is is always always listens to you and and, and has time for you as a child. Things like that, I think, it, it kind of comes back to that old idea of it taking a village to raise a child. Right. So that's a very good point, James. I have a question here. Leah, you you pointed this out. You you are you an only child? No. Oh, okay, but you said you grew up basically by yourself. Without no, no, I I brought myself up. I mean, with no disrespect okay. to my mom. <laughs> no, well, no, I obviously yeah, right. You know, <laughs> six yeah. years old wandering the streets, right? But because I, you know, I am an only child. I didn't have the influence mm-hmm. of a brother or sister. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, my parents were influential, but. It were it was books, movies, music, the arts mm-hmm. that really influenced me. So those were my role models. So, you know, watching a Cary Grant movie or Humphrey Bogart movie, reading a Raymond Chandler novel, and those types of things. Uh, Ellery Queen, when I was a kid, reading things that were even beyond my the the so called you know age range mm. influenced me. Right. So I was just wondering how many of you that's that was really the role models as opposed to. A person in particular. Yeah, the, I, I agree there. And and uh, James, you brought up this nudge theory. I think that's mm. really interesting, and I completely agree with you because I think about people that I've known in my life who I've admired, mm. and then think about, oh, I like this this uh, uh, characteristic that this person has. Mm. I think that maybe I want to try to do that too, because I think it's a good thing. So, for example, I used to have a next door neighbor. I guess you could say he was a recovering addict, and. Mm. He was a really amazing person, absolutely brilliant. And 
he just the way that he talked about people, he was just so not judgmental of them and so open to everyone's experience. And I thought, you know, I really like that about him. And I'm going to try to embody that myself because I think that's the right thing to do. So I don't know if I would have thought of him as a role model, but he's certainly an influence and someone that, uh, you know, and that characteristic is certainly something that I have strived to reach myself. Sure. Another thing that came up when we were when we were talking, Zach. I mean, I know you taught yourself a lot of of how you are now, and Ali, you've done the same. I wonder how much of this comes from having the confidence to say that I will be the way I want to be. Or I will model myself on these interactions, rather than I'll allow myself fall to the lowest level that's expected of me. I'll push myself to be the level I want to be. You know, it's that, that idea of I'll treat you well because I think well of myself. Yeah, I think that that's totally a part of it. Um, people who have a low self-esteem, A, they're not happy, and B, they're not going to be pleasant to other people because they just feel, you know, beaten down by the world and by life, and they're just angry. And goodness knows I've been that person for a very long sure. time, and I've sort of seen the other side. And I know how terrible it feels, and I know how terrible it is for other people that would have interacted me, with me at that time. Now that I've kind of seen the light and I see I, I have my perspective is completely different now. I look back at that and just think, wow, I can't believe that people were actually friends with me during that time of my life because I was so nasty. But I wasn't being nasty to them. I was just being nasty because I was so angry with my situation and whatever it was that we don't need to talk about now but whatever it was at the time that was really bothering me it had very much to do with that and I think at the time and this is when I was in my early 20s in university I was so full of rage that people used to come and t say to me Leah you're really intimidating I don't know if mm -hmm. I want to get involved you know and of course I didn't know what I was projecting because I didn't have that kind of objectivity about my own behavior. And I do now. And I mean, thank goodness I, I got to this point because oh, I'm sure I would be quite alone by this by now. I think that's maybe there's an element of whenever you want to change how you are, you know, it's like people who go to like the whole 12 step program thing. You know, you the first step in, in solving a problem is realizing there is one that in introspection and that looking at you know this outcome wasn't the outcome i wanted and the reason for that was at least in part the way i acted and the way i behaved therefore the thing i can control and the thing i can change is me and i can act differently next time that requires i think quite a level of strength and maturity and and, and bravery it's much easier to say nah it was the other guy's fault Yes, you're right. Yes, it's nice to be able to take responsibility for oneself. No question. I think for me personally, uh, there was no other option. I think that's the other thing is that there was no other yeah. option. I, I had no other place to go. My sort of transition, as it was, quite happened quite early. I always say I was born at 40 and just got older um, but, um <laughs> I, you know mine's happened when i was 12 somewhat different to, to you i did have role models but like brian said they're all fictional or mm. at least mm. portrayed fictional characters or fictional ideals of characters i sure. mean a couple of real life people and and deservedly so you know were people like david niven and carrie grant yes. and peter eustonoff and and <laughs> names yes. that now 
very few people know who are not younger than 30. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but these guys, especially people like David Niven, I always aspired to be like him because for me, he was that character who was a bon vivant. He was charming. He was witty. He was erudite. I wanted to become that because I, I, yes. I wasn't that. You know, now I know all the psychological reasons how, why I did what I did and how I did what I did and all that sort of stuff. But when I was 12 and I kind of made that decision, I needed role models. I mean, when I talk about role models, I think what I mean is people who influence you. And if the media is not putting out people who are, mm-hmm. an inverted commas, good, and I'm not using the purely yeah. good, I mean, yes. are exemplars to uphold, mm-hmm. then I think there's a problem. That's my personal take on it. I think there's, if it, we don't have exemplars, sure. if television is putting on, you know, not sportsmanship, if everyone's berating the ref and punching each other mm-hmm. and not behaving yeah. with good conduct or the lead politician of the day is berating another person, these are not exemplars of what behaviour and manners and kindness and what people should be. If that's what people are seeing all the time, sure. then the nudge theory takes effect mm-hmm. because we are disconnected by technology those are the people that are influencers. Those are the five people we spend time with because we're addicted to our Facebook. Right. Mm. So maybe it's now that we actually more need role models than we've ever done before. Well, I think that's what the the perfect gentleman. I mean, that's (laughs) what we can aspire to become is the role models for others, but in a realistic way. I mean, back then in the, you know, in the thirties and the forties, the, the film stars all had publicity agents who created, in many cases, those images and those, with the exception of Niven, he was the real deal. Uh, he was the real deal. <laughs> hard, to, hard to grow a pencil-thin mustache at age 12, though, I bet. That's... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> but I, I did start trying to drink the martinis about 12 or something. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, if any of our listeners have never read David Niven's autobiographies, please go out and read them. I think we've mentioned them before yes, in the podcasts. Absolutely. Just go and read them. The Moon's a Balloon and Bring on the Empty Horses are two of the best memoirs of Hollywood of that period of time ever. Listen to them narrated by himself. It's even better. It Sorry, is. That's one of my favourites. I, I was my favourite tale. Sorry, I'm rolling about David Niven for a second. My favourite tale about David Niven is when he passed away. The largest wreath that was sent to his funeral was from the porters at Heathrow, London Heathrow, where they had porters who carried your luggage. And it said, to the greatest gentleman that ever walked these halls. Hmm. Oh, how wonderful. So if the porters from Heathrow send you a wreath, you know you've done good. (laughs) (laughs) On that note. On that note. We've only done one topic. Oh my I god! Know, I was just thinking that this will have, to be, have to be a three-part series. <laughs> tune in again next week for group therapy. <laughs> 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 Uh, unfortunately, we lost Grant halfway through. So we, we lost him to technology and, and, uh, and uh, the vagaries of the internet. He's in Washington, so the NSA probably was starting to tap into his conversation. Right? <laughs> we, mentioned, we mentioned that person who, who is politically motivated far too many times, probably. <laughs> he was caught up. Oh, my God, how scary. <laughs> <laughs> 
I, I, it was a great pleasure speaking to you all. I, I had a lot of fun doing it. We shall have to do it again. Um, yes, um, this was. We can yes. do the two uh, the two other questions that we've not touched on. Exactly, yet. exactly. <laughs> and, and I'm looking forward to the dating one. That's that. Well, that was going to be my favourite one. Um, oh. we'll, have to, we'll have to bring another couple Gosh. of ladies in for that one as well. Um, so thank you everyone for uh, partaking. Thank you Grant, who, who's no longer with us. Uh, thank you Brian. Thank you Leah. Thank you James, my lovely co-host. Um, thank you all thank for you being with us. We shall look forward to speaking to you on another podcast. It will be James and I, unfortunately. We're back to us uh, next week. But in the meantime, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. And it's been a pleasure speaking to everyone. Thanks for listening. From Leah. And from Brian Sheridan in Erie, Pennsylvania. Thanks for listening. Thank you all. Have a lovely afternoon, morning or evening, wherever you are in the world. This podcast is brought to you by the Perfect Gentleman Group Limited and was edited by Andy Nichol at the Pistachio Palace.